to The Changing World of Work, a podcast series that gives you access to some of the best business minds from around the world. My name is Claire Luby from Irish Times Training. In collaboration with Kevin Empey, founder of Work Matters, we are bringing you conversations with international guests whose cutting-edge insights will disrupt your thinking and make you reflect on today's ever-evolving world of work. Welcome to this episode of the Changing World of Work podcast, brought to you by Irish Times Training. I am your host, Kevin Empey. From business executive to business school professor, Charles Handy, CBE, has worn many hats in his long and illustrious career, but is probably best known as an author and social philosopher, specialising in organisational behaviour and management. Rated and honoured consistently on the Thinker's Top 50 and numerous other lists, alongside the likes of Peter Drucker and Henry Mintzberg, Charles Handy has advanced numerous ideas and models through his over 20 books over the years that have become part of established management and working terminology, such as the Shamrock Organisation, Federal Organisation Structures, the Donut Principle and the Portfolio Career. Probably uniquely amongst his peers, Handy seamlessly draws on the fields of philosophy, literature, societal and business trends and day-to-day experience to communicate his insights on the ever-evolving world of work and working life with warmth and simplicity. As the Financial Times wrote about his most recent publication, 21 Letters on Life and Its Challenges, the great tactician is still thinking three hoops ahead. But it was perhaps uh, Professor Linda Grattan who summarised Charles's work best when she described him as the chief narrator of the unfolding story of work and organisations and how that storyline has shaped our work and our working lives. Charles Handy, welcome. We've talked a few times, Charles, over the years about one little piece of common history that we both share in that we're both sons of Anglican clergymen (laughs) with our early years growing up in small rural parishes in Ireland. Maybe just to start, you just tell us a little bit about that Irish connection and what ultimately led you into the field of studying organisations and working life. Well, yes, growing up in a vicarage, I mean, it leaves its mark. I find I'm incapable of telling a lie. I I just can't do it. And uh, then the whole sort of, you know, we grew up at the Bible and so on. And I was particularly impressed with Jesus, the story of Jesus, not so much that he was the son of God and so on, but because here was a man who, with his ideas and his stories, could change the culture of a nation and eventually the world which is what I was trying to do with the management world. I was going to, do, with my ideas and my stories, I wanted to change management from being like a sort of military discipline into creating a kind of community of interesting people. So, yes, Jesus is my model <laughs> in a funny way. If I can, like him, with my ideas and my stories, change the culture of management, I will have achieved my purpose in life. and. Uh, I'm not sure quite sure that's what I should be saying about Jesus, but uh, <laughs> it's a remarkable story. Of course, he suffered for it in the end. And I wasn't physically crucified, but I was uh, heavily criticized by some of the managers that I mm. hoped to convert to my ideas. We thought I was a wimp or something. I'm afraid that a lot of English managers, their model of management was the, was the military. Yes, yeah, so sort of command and control. That's right. Yeah. And uh, shoot you if you disobeyed. And uh, my idea that you should encourage people to develop themselves and so on, they thought that was the equivalent to inciting revolt. And of course, that's where you had your earlier experiences anyway as well with, with, with Shell. You, you experienced that firsthand, you know, both as an employee and as a as an executive, isn't that right? And then that's right. And then moved on from that. And what was the turning point? What was the the pivot that you felt actually, rather than you know live that life, you thought actually I would really like to study and I'd like to teach. I'd like to challenge, if you like, uh, the world of organisations and management and work. When would that happen? Well, and my first independent job was to run the little company in Sarawak at the bottom of Borneo. 
So now we get the land of big rivers and big jungles. And um, I had a little um, team of locals, and I realized that in the end, in that strange world of rivers and jungles, they knew far more than I did. And so I, I had to trust them. I had to rely on them totally. I couldn't even speak enough of their language, really, to be able to be sure that they understood what I was wanted from them. So I realized that if you want an organization to work, you've got to, A, invest in the employees, not in yourself, and B, you've got to trust them, and C, you've got to let go and hope that they I mean, they all knew what to do. I just had to sort of make feel that they were competent to, to do it. And I was investing in them. And my God, I had to because, I mean, I couldn't run this country. I mean, you know, you were transported by dugout canoes with an um, outboard motor at the back, driven by these young Sarawakians, who were all like all teenagers, were just out for the fun of it. And the river was full of floating logs from the log companies and crocodiles. It was not a very nice river to be driven on. And they were like teenagers on motorbikes, you know, they were wanting to run in and out of the crocodiles and the logs, and I was terrified. But I realized that there was no good shouting orders at them. I couldn't speak their language well enough. And I mean, I just had to trust them. <laughs> and otherwise I'd be thrown out and into the alligators. And um, so that was my first big lesson. Very vivid one as well. You know, some of us don't have that vivid, life-threatening kind of element to to our sort of early experiences, but it certainly seemed to prompt you into thinking differently about uh, work and organisations and indeed the whole area of employment in terms of your own personal circumstances. It wasn't like trusting the local shop manager, you know, not to cheat. This was life and death for me, I I just had to trust these guys not to overturn the canoe. I was told that I had a two minutes before I was dead if I fell into the river. Otherwise, I'd be in the, in the stomach of an alligator. <laughs> I had to trust them. There was nothing I could do. Not. And that was a steep learning experience, actually. And to trust them, I had to get to know them, to make sure that they knew what they were doing. I mean, I, I, I couldn't have done that job. They were skillful at avoiding the crocodiles and the, and the logs that were floating down. So I had to trust them. And to trust them, I had to get to know them. And to get to know them, I had to sort of uh, speak their language, drink their drink, which is profoundly awful. It was very alcoholic, and uh, I visit the homes. So I would go and spend the night in the long houses in their village. That whole early experience seemed to really impact you to, in terms of your next decisions. You know, to move on to teaching and to writing and to studying management. You you transitioned then, of course, to what became the London Business School. Too extreme for me, and uh, <laughs> I, in order to do anything, I couldn't take any big decisions. I could only, you know, suggest them to my superiors. So I got expert at writing long epistles, and I rather enjoyed that. So in the end, when they wanted me to move on, I decided I'd leave them and try writing a book about about management, based on my own experiences, really. And since my own experiences were usually negative, people like people rid them because they like they like their experts to be fallible. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> I learned enormous much from my mistakes, and I think they did too. Anyway, the book sold, and um, I was off, and uh, which was a much more cozy word, really, but... Um, <laughs> Less crocodiles. Yes, yeah, crocodiles of a different sort, maybe. You are exposed, you write this book, and there it is, all nice and shiny. And then, you know, you get the reviews coming in, and, um, and sometimes they're very critical. 
I remember one movie was incredibly critical. And my wife, Elizabeth, who's a mm -hmm. strong lady, she said, well, I think, you know, you better meet this guy and find out why he hates you so much. So I met in a pub in Bowles Bridge, and he, he turned out he was the would-be author himself. And since he couldn't write books, he criticized my books. And, others. <laughs> and anyway, he was a rather pathetic young man, and so I, I immediately forgave him and uh, thought, well, it doesn't matter, you know, that's his opinion. Let's see what other people think if they buy the book. So that was another lesson in life, you know. Don't take everything people say to you at truth. You know, let it bounce off you. Take note, but move on. And so it went on, and um, the book sold. And, and once one book sells, then your publishers are very interested in you writing another one. So, and so it went on. And so I hid myself away in the fields of Norfolk, as you know, and wrote about the world, which I couldn't see, but which I had experienced. And uh, well, you, 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 you had this though. You had this sort of sense. I remember uh, you know talking with you and reading about you before that you you challenging you know the way you challenge conventional wisdom of the day, and and that you you just you simply observed and searched for clues that you know around work and clues that might turn out to be, you know, what became normal in, you know, 10, 20 years time. And, and I, I can't help, you know, reflecting that, you know, so much of your work, you accurately predicted so much about the modern workplace and models that we take for granted today. So you, you pioneered ideas such as the Shamrock organization, you know, that idea of the small central organization and then the the wider you know whether it's outsourcing or gig workers and free agents and so all of that sort of break up if you like of that traditional command and control organization you you pioneered ideas like the donut principle and of course at individual level portfolio career all of these points that have just become commonplace now it it must be a sense of satisfaction when, when you you know when you reflect now uh charles on the world of work that we're in now in these post-covid times what's your reflection on where we where we are now and you know and 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 your observations and 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 how you, you just a you toe know. in the water actually mm -hmm. i mean um we can talk more about this but i think the new organizations are going to be not like the kind of military organizations of command and control that we used to have. They're going to be more like a a collection of individuals, a network, if you like, mm. of motivated, skilled individuals. So it's imperative that the people at the center of this network invest heavily in the individuals, improving their skills, and not telling them what to do, but encouraging them to work it out for themselves. So management is about teaching and in investment mm. and uh, not controlling. Mm. But, you know, it wasn't a popular message because the only image of management that most people had in England anyway, and I think even in Ireland, was uh, the army model where well, you had a plan and you drew it up on a blackboard and then you you just sent them off to... I mean, if you see these films of the First World War, you know, these poor, poor young men standing in the trench and then they have to go up over the top. But over the top, then they had to walk into a machine gun fire. I mean, it was impossible. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting to see even, you know, if you parallel, you know, the, the organizational development and evolution and indeed even that military example too, how they have also moved from, you know, that sort of command and control to more flexible units. And, you I mean, know, once, and, I was watching a film the other night mm -hmm. and, you know, there were 80,000 men with no protective uniform mm -hmm. getting up and walking towards machine guns across open fields and, you thought, how silly, why don't they send them around the back or around the side or put them on top of that little hill? I mean, you know, and now they do, of course. They do send them marching straight into death. But 
you know, you shouldn't need to do that so dramatically to change. But at long last, the, um, the military are actually beginning to adapt. Mm. I, uh, when I was just at London Business School running an MBA program, I went down to visit the military academy at Sandhurst to find out how they were doing their education things. And uh, they were much more modern and giving, mm. giving problems, real-life problems to, to the cadets who obviously said, no, 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 we should go, you know, they're much more creative. And so I came back and presented my students with real-life problems and uh, encouraged them to be creative. Mm. And it, it feels like that that a sort of a theme or golden thread running through your predictions and your thoughts about world of work, which you... You merge so well with ideas from philosophy and from, you know, literature and so on and just day to day experience that there's sort of a theme of or a thread of, of flexibility. In other words, shifting from a more hierarchical, bureaucratic command and control to a more flexible organization that's more human and more devolved, if you like, to the talent, you know, who who know, just like those folks in Borneo, who know best on, on, on the uh, at the front line. Speaking of vicarage. And being brought up in the Bible, mm. I learned a lot from the story of Jesus, mm. not religion, but um, the way he operated. I mean, he was a man who, using his ideas, quite revolutionary ones, and his stories, he changed the culture of a nation and eventually of the word. And that's what I wanted to do with management, with ideas and stories. And it began to work. And uh, I found that the story. If the stories could be encapsulated in a metaphor like a shamrock or something like mm. that, it really stuck in people's minds. Mm. Which then became uh, Uber. You, you think of the business model for Uber or Airbnb, a small center, and then relying on this distributed kind of workforce that are not even employees. It's a real, it's a real vivid example of what you predicted decades ago. Employees are now agents, you know. Mm. They have their own careers, their own life. And you have to win their loyalty and by investing in them and uh, by inspiring them. The manager is a teacher, really, mm. not as a heroic leader. And you've talked about even at that dramatic example with Airbnb and Uber, etc., where, you know, these employees are not, you know, part of the former organization you've you've talked a lot about well within an organization model you can still try and shift the culture to a more empowered if you like an entrepreneurial type idea you know that rather than the sort of bureaucratical you know hierarchical model yes i mean you can you can go to an extreme and and treat the employees as business agents really mm running their own little businesses and uh, on behalf of the organization. There are extreme organizations, interestingly, in China that do that, where employees can keep a percentage of the extra money that they actually create. So they really are the agents of the, of the organization. But uh, it's a different way of thinking, you know, and... Um, and where do you think it's going now? I mean, you must look now and, you know, particularly people would talk about, I, I certainly would observe some of your ideas and thoughts. They were, if you like, you would see them, observe them in certain pockets and in certain industries. You know, this idea of more flexible organization, more empowered and so on, uh, more distributed. It feels like COVID maybe created a sort of a, a circuit breaker where, Everybody, so at a, at a global level, everybody seemed to sort of stop and reflect about being more open to different ways in terms of how and where work could get done. It feels like there's been a, a global sort of point of reflection there and maybe rethinking that actually the traditional ways we have done things have served us well in the past. They've worked well, but actually we need to continue to be able to adapt and to flex and so on. What's your thoughts about that, about whether this sort of time we're in now is, is do, you, do you think it's just a normal kind of phase of, of you know, organizational evolution? Or do you think actually something quite dramatic has happened in the last five, ten years to 
bring, I suppose, some of your principles and ideas, you know, into reality, you know, more commonly across the world? Well, I think so. People realize that in the end, an organization depends on the individuals. Mm. And uh, they're not going to do things just because you say they have to. Mm. So you have to invest in them and to some extent uh, challenge them, educate them by challenging them and giving them different assignments. And so it's more like a newspaper, really, sending reporters out. Mm. I mean, you can give them assignments, mm. but you can't tell them exactly what to do. Mm. You've got to leave it up to them and you've got to get try and help them in some way, often by giving them examples from your own life or from their colleagues. But once you've sent them out and asked them to go and interview and so on, so then it's up to them very much. And uh, if they write a rubbish interview, then you've got to show them how it could have been better and so on. But they're very much independent agents once they leave your office. And so the idea of an organization as a collection of individual agents who could work together on a project, but who are not obedient and can't be told what to do. They can only be prodded to be exciting and competent. And uh, But yes, and more and more, I think we're going to see people realizing that organizations and collections of individuals mm. and the way forward is to win their confidence in you as a guide, but not as a manager, more as a teacher and a resource, but they're very independent. And I think independence are the two words that we're going to see a lot more of. Mm. A lot more of individuals want to be independent mm. and in control of their own ideas, their own work but also dependence that they can't, realizing they can't do it all on their own. Mm. So they need a connectivity with others and with the organization. So yes, my shamrock model is extended to individuals now. Mm. So there is a an organization which is basically the stem of the shamrock that holds the whole thing together. But otherwise now, instead of a leaf being a, another organization, it's a funny shamrock because it's got lots of little leaves. <laughs> Those are all independents, making their own decisions and setting their own objectives in line with the objectives of the organization, mm. but very much their personal objectives, mm. which are partly about for the good of the organization and partly for themselves, mm -hmm. developing their skills and their competences. And introducing them to new horizons, new possibilities that they could actually do things that they never thought they could do, which is the most satisfying thing in life, to suddenly discover that, yes, you could actually, you know, run the mile in five seconds rather than ten minutes or something. I mean, very satisfying. At my funny school, we used to have what they call standards in the summer. You should be able to run a mile in in 10 minutes and uh, jump so high and so on. And uh, it was very satisfying when you could actually meet these damn standards. You've talked a lot about how the skills for work and the skills for the outside, if you like, come so much from other fields, not just from what you learn on the job, but actually from the fields of sport, from literature from the arts and so on and philosophy as well that you know we it's a and it's perhaps maybe another function of this shift from 20th century thinking to more 21st century thinking is that even our educational models need to to adapt to that more independent and more problem solving kind of um, reality as opposed to a kind of a, a, a guide to to how to guide if you like to guide us through work and 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 what we need to do yes my my son is a theater director at a school and it seems to me what he does is very good model because these are individuals and uh, you can you can sort of tell them what you expect from them and suggest you know what he does he leads them through the 
the placings where they have to be on the stage. But after that, it's a question of coaching them, really, suggesting, you know, well, if you're going to really be angry with, uh, with this person, how are you going to express that physically and, um, and so on? But you can't tell us them exactly. You can only suggest it and ask them to go home and reflect about what happens when his wife is angry with him. What does she? How does she behave? And how does he behave in answer to that? So yes, you can learn from domestic situations. Mm-hmm. Um, but he thinks that drama is a very good form of instruction about life, and I think he's right. And so in the business school where I teach, we use case studies, which aren't, are inadequate representations of a problem in real life. But I much prefer actually to bring individual managers in to describe some of the problems they have and ask the class what they would do. Mm. And then he would say, well, it's all very well you could say that, but I mean, how do I persuade a hundred people that I don't know to, to behave like that? And of course, they don't know that. Mm. I mean, it's, reality is much more difficult. Than, mm-hmm. The complexities of human reality. Yeah. It, it, it feels, would you observe, Charles, like that sort of era of flexibility, more individual, prepare, you know, independent work and so on that you predicted decades ago and, as you said, challenged the norm at that time and challenged the models that existed and that had worked for, for managers and leaders you know, up to that point, but now has come absolutely into fruition. And you're seeing it too from employees as well regarding their demand and their desire for more flexibility and autonomy and the shift to hybrid working and all of that. Is that a trajectory that you expect to see, that sort of continued flexibility and autonomy? It's not just working from home. It's uh, having your own little sort of mini business, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, you may agree objectives and targets with your central coordinator, who won't be called a manager, but a coordinator or project leader. But uh, it's up to you, really. And um, the reward system has to be tied into that. Mm. A lot of change ahead to fit our management processes to fit that model. So there's a danger, isn't it, that we we still we we are moving to a more flexible model, but quite a lot of our ways of managing and the processes and rewards, etc., are still aligned with the old model. I guess. Yes, I think I think the military model is embedded in the minds of an awful lot of people. The only example they have. Mm. So we've got to find new, more examples. Mm. I think from the theater, from uh, filmmaking, um, you know, mm-hmm. all sorts of worlds, even from the church. <laughs> and uh, it's very much left up to them how they do it. I mean, yes, they have a book of commandments, uh, if, if they ever get around to reading them. and um, But how they pronounce that is depending very much on their own character and developing the particular skills that they have I mean and tell me what in this kind of shift that you know you forecasted so well predicted and now we're in and more of to come in the future what advice would you offer to say business leaders and HR leaders you know those who are I suppose shaping this phase of work you know for, that's fit for the 21st century that aligns with what people want but also has to get work done and get business done and to be successful what would be some advice you would give to those folks who are trying to create the conditions for that success and get that balance right well i've noticed from watching sports teams if people enjoy what they're doing they tend to do it better and uh, Seems bizarre to say that one should enjoy your work, but uh, if you can create an atmosphere where it's very exciting and you, you know, a spurt of energy as you enter the workshop or the workroom or the office, then if you enjoy it, you'll do it better. Mm. Going back to basics. You're very much to basics. One of the things I used to do with my students at the London Business School 
also send them off into uh, organizations, having got permission to send them in. And I tell them to come back with evidence of the what I call the E factors, E standing for energy, excitement, entrepreneurship, and so on, which you can tell, funnily enough, just by walking into a building. And uh, you know how the receptionist treats you, you walk down the corridors, is there a sort of feeling of excitement, drawings on the wall, or whatever? You've got into, if you are allowed to listen to a meeting, is there a sense of excitement there? Is there any energy? I mean, the most dramatic examples I always found was walking into a, a primary school on the Monday morning. Amazing. Energy. Sense of energy coming out from all these little people. And the teacher, it was very impressive. And I'd send my management students to sit at the back of these primary school classes and say, how did she generate this sense of excitement? I mean, you know, they were all chattering away in their little groups. And, uh, <laughs> you know, she really had to shout to get them to pay attention to her. <laughs> and I'd say, how can you create that kind of excitement, energy in your people? I mean, I know they're all doing their little jobs and their little offices, but every so often, can you bring them together? Can you and somehow, so not by speaking, but... Facilitating a kind of a, an environment where... That's right. Yeah. You could be the added, the added extra element that somehow generates. So you've got to be excited yourself about what you're doing and radiate that excitement. It can't be infectious. That you are the source of the infection. And that's creating the conditions for innovation. It's creating the conditions for, for us to be able to continue to adapt and you know, create new ways of doing things. So Yes. This two-circle model, I call it a donut, but it's not really a donut. The, the core of the middle of this, these two circles, the inner circle, is what you have to do. Mm. Uh, in order, it's basic, you know, a job description. And then the second circle is a bigger one. That's the room for your initiative. And that's when you're encouraged to improve on the job description to, to make it better and uh, to exceed the expectations of your superiors. Yeah. That's what's so exciting uh, or could be exciting. No, and it's something you've predicted for so long, Charles, but it was only it was only a couple of months ago um I was talking to an employer who who actively had uh, job descriptions for certainly for some of their key roles that they were finding it hard to attract people on. And they said, well, actually, what we've only done is we've we've scoped out about 70% of the job in terms of what we need to get done. But the other 30%, we are saying to candidates, fill in this 30% for what you bring and what you uniquely want to do and, and how you want to grow this role. And it was just a clever way of giving a sense to this uh, employee or candidate that this is an organization that thinks differently about how they want to, you know, work with me. You can control your own destiny. Mm. You know, you don't just have to sit there and hope it's going to work out. You can't actually swim. You don't have to wait for the tide to carry you somewhere. Better still, you can get yourself a, an outboard motor. <laughs> it's up to you. It's not up to anybody else to supply you with a motorboat. You've got to do it. You've got to find a piece of wood and climb on it and then pedal behind it or something. You know, you can't do your own. Too many of my, my students think that if they pass their exams, then the world will be open to them. and They'll be looked after. Mm. And it doesn't work like that. You've got to have your own ideas, I mean, um, and strike out anew, I mean. Maybe to sort of finish up on this theme, Charles, you know, we talked about the sort of the leadership piece, but at individual level, you've touched on it there. I mean, what advice would you give to individuals who are, you know, concerned about their future, navigating you know, what is a complex world of work? They're concerned maybe about skills, they're concerned about automation and AI and so on. And they're thinking, okay, well, how do I, as we've talked about, how do I thrive in the future of work as opposed to just cope? 
and survive. What are your advice to them in terms of at individual level, what people can do? You know, the Irish Times training, we've, we've a lot of a lot of focus on skills, you know, and I'm just interested in your thoughts about what the skills, if you like, individual skills um, for navigating the future would be. Well, I, I think the main thing is do what you enjoy. I mean, I, I love the story Ken Robinson, the educationist, tells of interviewing two parents who are very worried about their daughter who is not getting her head down and studying for her exams and how to motivate her and so on. And he was interviewing them, but in the next one, there was a sort of one of these one-way mirrors between them. So the daughter was in the other room, and she couldn't see them, but they could see her. And he put on some music. And after about halfway through the interview, he said, uh, that's your daughter in there, isn't it? And they said, yes. And they said, what, what's she doing? And they said, she's dancing. And he said, well, there you are. <laughs> your daughter isn't very good at math, but she's a ballerina in the making. Do what you enjoy and you'll do it well. And if you enjoy math, great, you know, you'll do it well. And if you enjoy making a nuisance of yourself, go and be an entrepreneur. One of my grandsons enjoys disrupting things and um, playing the fool. And I said, well, your job is to make money out of that. So now he has a, a show on YouTube <laughs> where he's uh, solving puzzles and people pay to watch him. Uh, he doesn't make a million, but he makes a bit of money. I know you've quoted so many times uh, many people, but um, Aristotle being one of your favourite and, you know, one of your translations of of his sort of teachings is, what is it, doing doing your best at what you're best at and in the service of others. I always thought that was a nice way of capturing. Um, yes, he called eudaimonia. Yeah, exactly. Which is a sort of... Uh, Perfect form of happiness when you're doing your best at what you're best at for the sake of others, that you really feel good about yourself. I mean, if I'm giving a lecture and if it uh, goes well and people write to me afterwards saying, thank you very much for your, what you said, it's helped me a lot, then I feel really happy, you know, much happier than just having a drink with a pretty girl. To make a difference, even to one person in life, mm. it can happen in all sorts of ways. My wife and I, she sadly passed away now, but we used to have breakfast sessions. Anybody who wanted to consult me could come and have breakfast with me between 8 o'clock and 9 o'clock. It's a very skimpy breakfast, just across on a cup of coffee, but they would present me with their problem. And we were to quiz them, and uh, and in the end, um, they would resolve their problem just by talking more and more about talking, it. talking it through. Then I'd get a letter after saying, "Thank you very much for breakfast. It was a great help. What you said." And I'd write back saying, "I didn't say anything. You said it all. You know, you you solved your own problem just by being prodded." And. Uh, so I think we can all, always find our own solutions. Just need somebody to believe in you. Yes, and um, and the sense of, you know, that whole idea of being your best, you know, at what you're best at and living that out in terms of what that means for you, a sort of sense of freedom in that, uh, Charles. And I know you've, you know, recently talked about that sort of, that uh, I think it was an essay on freedom you, you referred to, that idea of from, to, you know, that we're aware of where we're at. You have to choose in life between two freedoms. There's freedom from, you know, freedom from anxiety, freedom from poverty, freedom from homelessness and so on, all the, all the problems of life, which, you know, when I was looking for work, how to, when I left university, my main problem was how to earn enough money to buy a house, marry a girl, start a family. And I was hopeless at starting my own business. So along came Shell, recruiting people 
from university. And they were saying, join us and you know, we'll give you a career for life in different parts of the world and uh, we'll look after you and make sure you're paid well and have a house and so on. And I thought, ah. And I remember writing to my, home to my parents in Ireland saying, dear mum and dad, life is salt. Shell is taking care of it. And I really thought that was true. And that was true until they posted me to Malay, Malaya. And uh, I was in charge of South Malaya based on a lovely little town called Malacca on the Indian Ocean. And I went there, I had a luxurious old style plantation house with a tennis court and, uh, and servants and a chauffeur. And, um, I even, I'd read in Somerset, Mom, that the really smart expatriates there, they used to have the Singapore Times, which is the daily newspaper, they used to have it ironed because then it became like an international newspaper, very fine. So I insisted that my morning newspaper should be ironed, and so I lived this life of luxury. But I discovered that I was like a tiger in a golden cage. I mean, I couldn't do anything. I could write letters recommending things to my superiors in Kuala Lumpur, the capital, but I couldn't take a decision myself. And I found it very, very frustrating. But it was freedom from, I didn't have anything to worry about. My, my salary was very generous and popped into my bank account every day or every month or whatever. And I lived a very luxurious life, but I had no independence at all. So in the end, I got frustrated and resigned and went back to, to England to start being a writer, which I, I have always wanted to be. And then when I was independent, I could write about anything I liked, provided my publisher would let me. And uh, indeed, my first book sold 10,000 copies in the first month. So I was, so I thought, ha, ah, life was solved. But uh, it didn't go on selling, unfortunately, and I didn't write any more. And uh, so we were a little bit impoverished. My wife had a job as publicity assistant for Richmond Theatre. And she said, well, you can use my salary. I said, it's not enough to feed the cat, let alone feed me. And so we starved, sort of until I um, was eventually got going writing, writing books, but uh, it took a long time. So the sort of paradox there, because you were talking about sort of the freedom that Shell created, but that you were a freedom to... Freedom from all the problems of life. Mm -hmm. They even filled in my income tax return. Mm -hmm. and, but when I was back in London trying to write, I had freedom to write about anything I liked, but no money, mm -hmm. except for my wife's salary to feed the cat. And um, I had to choose. Which freedom? An employer like Shell who would give me freedom from all the worries of life. Or did I break out of my own and have freedom to do anything I liked, but might be very poor? Mm. And I think all of us have that freedom. And uh, of course, the exciting thing is to have both. So my ideal organization would work like the London Business School. The London Business School, I had a contract that gave me a modest salary for the rest of my working life. It was called tenure. And uh, but it meant I had freedom to teach what I liked, but within the sort of code and principles of the school. Mm -hmm. So they guaranteed me freedom from destitution in a modest way, but I still had freedom to teach what I liked. And indeed, I had, as part of my contract, the freedom to do consultancy or what teach on my own for up to three days a week with the approval of the dean. So that was freedom too. And so I still think it's possible to have a contract of which you give 30% of your time to the organization in return from a basic contract of salary and 
fringe benefits of one sort or another, but you have another 20% for your own work. Mm. Do what you like mm. with the approval, I suppose, of of your of your boss, but uh, not to be not to be withheld, except in extreme circumstances. Mm. So you have both freedom from a basic gallery, basic contract, and freedom to so many days a week or whatever, however you define it, to do your own thing and use the skills you've learned in the organization to run your own little business or provide your own services as a consultant or something like that. I still think that's possible. And it's extends an extension, Charles. It's an individual agent whom you have hired for a portion of their time, but which for the rest of their time they're free to use outside the organization and even use the skills they've learnt in the organization to make money for yourself outside. I still think treating people as an independent agent and working out a contract that gives them both freedom from and freedom to is what I want to see in more organizations. Of course, it makes it complicated. You only have control over a half of that time. But hopefully, you have more energy as they develop the skills because they can use them in their freedom to time. Mm. So working out these sorts of complicated contracts is what the way forward, I think. Treating your employees as individual agents whom you are for a certain percentage of the time, leaving them free to monetize their skills outside in their own time. I've yet to got lots of examples of that, except from the London Business School, which is a unique institution, I mean, or other academic institutions, whom, you know, they demand, in the business school, they demand so many teaching hours from me as my basic mm-hmm. contribution to the organization. But the rest of the time is my own, provided I notify the dean as to what I'm doing, but I don't have to get permission. It's part of my contract that I'm free to go home and write books or to go off and lecture to some other organization and charge some money. It's an extension, isn't it, of of that theme of flexibility that, you know, you have charted all the way through, you know, from the Shamrock organization shifting from a hierarchical, um, the portfolio career, of course. Um, so what you're painting here is a you know a picture of how that flexibility uh, and freedom will express itself probably in the next phase. Yes, the portfolio career means that one part of the portfolio is uh, in, in employment and guarantees you a certain basic standard of living, which gives you then the freedom to, you know, be experimental in your own time and the other. So I see more and more people who say, you know, I wish I wish I could be independent like you, but I can't afford to be it. And I said, well, get somebody to pay you a base wage for something you can do easily. And then find that freedom to work in other in other aspects. Yeah. So uh, you know, I say I remember when our kids were young, we we hired these uh, lovely ladies from Ireland to teach them, and then we said to Ethne, it was I think, would you like to do that for other children? And she said, yes, I'd love to. So we set her set up a mini kindergarten which she ran. So we actually guaranteed her a basic wage and food and lodging. And then in addition, she ran this kindergarten for the local neighbors and earned her own money. And so she was at freedom from because we guaranteed her food and lodging. And then she had freedom to run this kindergarten, which was a great success and she was very happy and very proud, and um, we were just sort of, I mean, what we did, we gave a we gave a party for all the parents, as we did, 
and they came and purred approval about all she was doing, and uh, so everybody was happy. We got her, and, uh, and she was happy. Yeah, well, you're, it's an analogy for the organizational leadership piece that you talked about earlier. Your leaders providing the ecosystem and providing the environment in which the best talent that you want to attract can have both that freedom from in terms of some independence and some uh, security, but also combined with freedom to type work in terms of expressing their own. Uh, Those managers I talk to say, no, 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 why should I do that? I want all the time. Mm -hmm. I'm saying, well, you will get the best out of them. That's what you do. Let them have their own time. And uh, they've developed skills you can't think of mm -hmm. if they're left on their own. And uh, some I convince, most people don't, they want to have their little, little clique that they can summon them. And I say, well, yes, but don't overdo it, because then you won't you lose their individuality, their enterprise, their energy. Everybody wants to work for themselves, I think, a bit of the time anyway. So the, the challenge for organizations, I think, now is to provide freedom from but allow freedom too. And a new sort of contract in a new... Isaiah, Professor Isaiah Berlin, for his little essay on mm. the two freedoms. I mm. think uh, it's very important. Well, Charles, I can only thank you for that. And I would encourage people to engage with your thinking and writing if they haven't already done so more. Uh, you know, your most recent work, I think, 21 letters of the challenges of, of life and the second curve and so on. I certainly know Elizabeth would encourage people to continue to 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 read your work um, and your insights. <laughs> yes. And uh, I know she would. So thank you so much for joining us today. Please continue to challenge and provoke thought in terms of uh, the way work and life is changing. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for joining the Irish Times training podcast today. Thank you. Been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Changing World of Work podcast. Join us next time as we speak to experts about the trends, innovations and developments affecting workers and our workplaces.